certainly in wonder and grateful and thankful for so many answers to prayer of even people here that have gone through physical problems that are now able to be with us again, recovering, and some that you've prolonged their lives and allowed them to still continue to be with us. And what a joy it is to be able to fellowship with them again today. And, Father, we ask for those that are struggling with some health issues like Ms. Laverne. Lord, we understand the the, the, the gravity of the situation for the family and their uh, coming to grips with uh, these, these things that the doctors have told them. And uh, we pray that you would give grace there. And Lord, above all, uh, would you give grace and comfort, give peace of heart and mind to Miss Laverne. And uh, Lord, that the, uh, the times of not understanding and the paranoia that sets in, that you would draw very near to her. And... Uh, Ease the process, we pray, of her going through this. And I pray that you would just uh, have your hand upon her. We pray for Brother Jess and uh, with uh, the lung uh, cancer, that you would uh, touch his body. And Lord, ease the discomfort from it. And again, give uh, grace to uh, him and especially to Miss Sarah. As Lord, I know her heart is, is saddened by this. And uh, I pray that you draw very near to her. We pray for... Uh, Brother Tom's brother-in-law and uh, the, the cancer that he's going through, and uh, Miss Florence and uh, the issues with her cancer, I pray that you would uh, strengthen them. And Lord, that we, we ask that you would bring some healing there and uh, some recovery. And uh, then for uh, Miss Kathy's uh, sister, that you would uh, also uh, intervene in that situation and uh, take care of those things as well. Lord, so many uh, folks that I know are hurting, a uh, number of requests that have not even been shared today because of uh, maybe the personal nature of it or uh, the confidentiality of some of them, and yet, Lord, the burdens are heavy. And, uh, Lord, we pray that You would bless in each situation, that You would draw very near, and that You would provide solutions, that You would provide uh, physical healing where it's needed and that you would provide wisdom and guidance for those that are struggling with the, just problems and circumstances of life, issues with relationships, Lord, that you would give grace where it's needed, hope there to be forgiveness and understanding. And then, Father, I pray that you would bless uh, the preaching, the teaching of your word today. Above all, we ask that Your Holy Spirit will do a work in our hearts. And Father, may we not just come here and and uh, just consume the time because it's what we're supposed to do, but Father, may it be a, a, a time where there's a transforming work done in our lives, in our hearts. May there be a refreshing of our spirits and uh, our minds to be comforted. I pray that the preaching, the teaching of Your Word would do its work. In our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We're going to be in the book of Zephaniah this morning. And uh, <clears throat> Zephaniah uh, has something unique about him as a prophet that, as far as we know, no other prophet uh, in the Old Testament can lay claim to this. And that is that he is from a uh, line of royalty. Uh, if you look in Zephaniah chapter 1, let's look in verse number 1. 
The Bible says, "...the word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah." And uh, we find that he gives uh, a lineage here. And the lineage is to tie himself to a line of royalty. And from what we understand of every other prophet that we know about, that were the authors of prophetic books, uh, no other prophet that we know of in the Old Testament can lay claim uh, to a line of royalty. Uh, There is uh, one other prophet. character in, in the Scriptures overall that can lay claim to uh, the royalty line and also a prophetic line. Does anybody know who that one would be? One other character. Not found in the Old Testament. Who was it? Somebody said it. Jesus. Okay. He's a prophet, a priest, and a king. And uh, so there is a, a typology, if you will, uh, of this. And I believe that uh, it's very interesting to note that Zephaniah begins the book uh, by stating his lineage and uh, having it uh, uh, tied to royalty. He is a prophet to uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. He more than likely is a resident of Jerusalem. There's uh, evidence given in in just the three chapters of the book that we uh, see his familiarity with the the city itself, uh, with the palace and the king. He serves during the the time of uh, Josiah, who was... If you'll remember, the youngest king of Israel began ruling when he was very, very young. After about eight years of ruling, he began to turn his heart towards the Lord and had all of the prophets of Baal destroyed, and we began to see some revival taking place somewhere between about 620 and 625 B.C. are the times of these revivals. Now, they're very short-lived. They're kind of the towards the end of... Uh, Judah's uh, time of, of God being long-suffering towards them. I believe that uh, quite possibly the reign of Josiah and these, uh, these revivals prolong the uh, coming judgment of God uh, on Judah uh, because of the fact that they did, uh, did transform them uh, for a short while. But uh, I will say they were fairly short-lived revivals. And uh, they affected basically the, the outer uh, circumstances of life in, in the folks of Judah, but they did not transform the heart. And I say that by way of warning because there are a lot of, uh, I'm going to use air quotes here, which are overly used quite often. People often use air quotes way more than they should. All right, but let me just say this. We have a lot of things today that we call revivals that, if we're not careful, they do the same thing that that these revivals did to Judah. They affect the outer uh, conduct, perhaps, for a period of time. But they lack in the transforming work of the heart. And uh, this is what takes place. But there are some revivals. I do believe they prolonged the coming judgment of God. And there is pretty good evidence that because... Uh, some of the sins that Zephaniah deals with being previous to the time of revival under Josiah, uh, it tells us pretty well that, that these, these preachings, these prophecies that he preaches to Judah were probably instrumental in even bringing about those revivals. 
God's desire was not to destroy Judah. By the way, God's desire is never to bring judgment on people. That's not what He longs for. His righteousness demands it. His justice demands it. His holiness demands it. But it is not what His heart longs for. His heart longs for men to repent and to come back to Him. And so He offers. That's why God is long-suffering. That's why God offers uh, grace, unmerited favor. He offers mercy. Because His desire is not to judge. His desire is to redeem and to forgive. And if men will come back to Him uh, willingly then He is ready to forgive their sin and to heal their land. And He gave them that promise uh, many, many years earlier. Uh, By the way, He's that same way with us. His desire is not to chasten us as His children. His desire is for us to come to Him and to get those things right. But there are times that God has to bring us through chastening. And uh, it's through the uh, stiff-neckedness, the hard-heartedness of our hearts, uh, the rejecting of that offer of repentance that God gives to each and every one of us that causes Him to bring judgment upon Him. The book opens with the preaching against the idolatry of Judah. It speaks of God's wrath coming. In fact, the first two and a half chapters are really dealing with the coming judgment of God uh, on several things, but he closes the book, the last half of chapter 3, uh, deals with uh, the uh, worship of God, the fact that God is going to, uh, at the end of time, He's going to redeem His people, He's going to bring them back together again, and He's going to restore them as His people. And uh, the theme that uh, throughout the book that he deals with is the phrase, the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord in Scripture, in prophetic terms, is... Uh, usually always dealing with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a couple of occurrences in Scripture where the day of the Lord is used generically as a a phrase meaning the end-time events as a whole, but those are very rare. Most oftentimes when you see the phrase the day of the Lord, it is referring to uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be at the end of the tribulation period uh, when He comes back and He sets up His millennial reign. And it's during that time that He will bring Israel back to Himself and restore them as His people. There will be a remnant that is left, and they will be able to come back to God. They will for the, uh, finally recognize Him as the Messiah, and they will accept Him as their King. And so that's really uh, a lot of what uh, the book of Zephaniah is dealing with. Uh, but there are some current, time, current judgments that... Zephaniah also is teaching and preaching to Judah. He's speaking of their uh, impending destruction. And uh, so in chapters 1, there's basically two, two sections of the book. First of them is uh, the judgment in the day of, during the day of the Lord, uh, the coming judgment of God. And then the second one is the salvation, uh, which is another part. It's at the end of the day of the Lord uh, that is referred to uh, prophetically. But there is that time of salvation. With regards to the judgment of the day of the Lord, uh, he begins by speaking of the coming judgment on all of the nations of the earth. The entire world is going to be judged. And so this obviously is very clearly speaking of uh, the tribulation time period. And so we have a prophetic uh, uh, message that is given here. And the reason that is given is uh, kind of an over-encompassing theme, and that is because of the sins of men. 
so we understand that the, the judgment that comes during the tribulation time, we just last Wednesday finished dealing with the book of Revelation. We found over and over again that God is just in His judgment during the tribulation period. He is not wrong for doing it. He is not unfair to man. He has been more than long-suffering. And even during the tribulation, He is more than long-suffering and gives men a chance to repent and to come back to Him. But they will not. Uh, the hardness of their heart, the sinfulness. And uh, we found several times in Revelation that given the choice, men said, I would rather die than give up my sin. And that's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around, isn't it? How, how could somebody say, I would rather suffer the judgment of God. I would rather go uh, into eternal uh, punishment uh, for my sin than to give up my sin. We look at that and we, we scratch our heads and we think, how in the world? But the truth is, in how we live our lives today, <laughs> how often are we not willing to give up our sin? And we're children of God. We're ones that have trusted Him as our Savior. And so before we're too overly critical of Judah, before we look at them and say, boy, I just don't understand it, why in the world would they continue to sin with the warning from God? We do the same thing. We have a warning from God here in this book. And you have preachers that will stand up and preach it. But more importantly, you have the book that tells you this, that there is a price for sin. There are consequences to our decisions. And yet we still willingly choose to sin. I, I, I was in a, a men's meeting a number of years ago, and the, the fellow that was teaching uh, the session made a statement that I'd never... I guess we all know this, but we don't ever, I guess, consciously think of it this way. And he made this statement. He said, the truth is, you know, we use this phrase, well, they fell into sin. The truth is, no man ever falls into sin. It's not, it's not like we're walking along and we don't see sin laying there. We just, whoops, there we go. We fell into it. We know the sin's there. We are given a choice. God even makes a way of escape from it. And yet, when we sin, we choose to do so. So before we sit here too, too pious and too haughtily and too proud of our own selves, understand that Judah is in a situation that oftentimes even we as Christians find ourselves in. And that is unwilling to give up the sin. The book of Hebrews in chapter number 12 speaks of it as the sin which doth so easily beset us. It so easily gets a hold of us. And so God brings judgment to all nations. He's going to in the end times. We just studied that. I'm not going to have to reteach Revelation to you this morning. If you weren't here, you can go back and get the uh, videos on that and, and watch that. But God brings judgment. He brings judgment without mercy during the tribulation period. And rightfully so. Some people would say, well, that's just not fair. No, God has given us mercy. In fact, for the last... Uh, what, 6,000, 7,000 so years since man has sinned, He's given us mercy. He has been long-suffering. He has been tolerant, not for the sin, but to give us opportunity to repent of that sin. And uh, so we find that He begins um, His statement in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, dealing with um, the judgment of the world in the end time. So if you uh, look at verse number 2, <clears throat> You'll find that he begins the book uh, with the idea of destruction 
and uh, consuming all things. He says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast, and will consume the fowls of the heavens, and the fishes of the sea, and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. And so we find uh, that there is a um, uh, beginning of uh, the book dealing with the, the coming destruction of God, uh, His judgment upon it. And then at the very end of the book, uh, look in verse number 20 of chapter 3, and this is a wonderful contrast. He ends it with, again, His promise of restoration. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. So yes, he begins the book with wrath and judgment upon their sin, but he ends it with grace. He ends it with re- reclaiming his people, uh, redeeming them, restoring them. And uh, what a wonderful God we serve, isn't he? Even though he is just even though He is holy and righteous and demands punishment for sin, and judgment does come, He is a God that redeems us from those things. And He makes this promise to the remnant of those that will remain faithful and true, uh, that come through the tribulation period, He will restore them, and they will be His people, and He will be their God once again. The second part uh, of the judgment of the day of the Lord that is spoken of is found in verses 4-18 through of chapter 1. And this is speaking primarily of God's judgment on Judah itself. And so this is a more recent uh, prophecy. It's not something that's looking towards the end-time events or the tribulation period, but speaking more specifically, more directly to Judah itself uh, of the upcoming downfall, uh, the fact that God is going to uh, bring judgment on Judah. There are three things that God uh, reasons why God is going to judge Judah that are given here in the book of Zephaniah. One of them is that they began with a pollution of, uh, of the priesthood with regards to idolatry. Pollution of the priesthood that begins with idolatry. By the way, uh, it's interesting that over and over as we study these times where Israel or Judah have uh, gone under the judging hand of God, it almost, without exception, always begins with the desecration and the pollution of the religious leaders, even more so before the king. Uh, rarely is it uh, in a different order. It usually begins with the, uh, the, the religious leaders uh, either watering down the message or becoming very, um, uh, I guess the best, the best word uh, would be to become very uh, familiar with the idolatry of the nation without calling it out. Uh, they began to accept things in the, in the nation. Some of them even give themselves to it. Uh, they began to incorporate idolatry. Uh, I was in Haiti a number of years ago uh, on a missions trip. Everywhere I went, everywhere I went, uh, we were in multiple cities, big cities. We went into Cape Haitian. Uh, we're there for several days. We went up into Limonade and Limbe and Pion and over into uh, Port-au-Prince and just basically went all, o- all over the island for uh, a little more than a week. And uh, everywhere we went, it didn't matter what city we went into, there were the names, there were religious names on everything. I mean, on cars, on buses, on buildings, 
uh, it would be Emmanuel or Jesus or uh, all these different Christo uh, was on there. All I mean, everywhere you looked, you found names of God, you found uh, references to the things of God, and yet the prominent practice of worship over there is voodoo, uh, which is a satanic uh, thing. And I, I asked the missionary that we were with at the time, I said, this, you know, if, if anybody came here to this country not knowing and understanding some things, they would look around and say, this, this must be a very religious, a very Christian nation. And he said, no, Pastor. He said, what happened was, years ago, uh, the, the Catholics came in to try to evangelize uh, the, the island. This was a uh, hundred plus years before. And he said, when they came in, what they decided to do, rather than to, uh, to teach against the voodoo practices, is they decided to intermingle and mix their truth with what we were already practicing, trying to relate to the people so that they would come to a faith in religion. By the way, uh, that is a philosophy that's in our world today, is it not? To try to mix the world with God's Word. The problem with that is our Bible says that the world is at enmity with God. It is something that is diametrically opposed. There is a, a warfare going on there. And to try to mix the two and intermingle the two will invariably bring, bring the things to the world side of things. And so... Uh, here we have these priests that are corrupted with idolatry. And this is one of the big downfalls of Judah. Uh, even though they have a godly king uh, under Manasseh and, and a few of the other previous kings, uh, there was great, great wickedness. Great wickedness in Judah. Uh, the immorality that went on, the, the idolatry that went on. And Josiah comes on the scene and he's, uh, he, he is trying to do right. He's... he's trying to lead the country in a, in a godly way, and he does some good things. But it's too little too late. The hearts of the people are given to their idolatry. They don't want to give it up. They are of the same mindset that you'll find during the tribulation period of we would rather die than give up our sin. We would rather die than give up and suffer the judgment of God than to give up our idolatry. And so one of the reasons that God that Zephaniah gives here and preaches to Judah for God judging them and causing their nation to come into captivity, which is yet to come yet, uh, was because of the polluted, idolatrous nation, uh, nature of the priests and those that were in religious uh, uh, influence over them. And then, as a whole, the country promoted the worship of Baal. Baal was uh, probably the biggest idolatrous uh, worship form back then, and the whole country was pretty well given to the worship uh, of Baal. Uh, Baal was initially introduced to the nation of Israel years prior. If you remember Ahab and Jezebel, and Jezebel was uh, Baal was around during that time, uh, but Jezebel was really probably the key instrument in promoting Baal, the worship of Baal, to the nation of Israel as a whole and making it kind of a uh, a mainstream worship, idolatrous worship, if you will. Um, and so again, uh, they, the whole heart of the people are given to the worship of Baal. And then the, the officials, the governmental officials, uh, they are completely corrupted. Uh, they are uh, open for the highest bidder and they take bribes and justice is certainly not uh, fair. It is not just. And so for these reasons, God says, I'm going to bring judgment to you, Judah. Your time is short. 
we need to be careful that we understand what it is that displeases God. In the day that we live, we need to understand, as God's children, our heart's desire ought to be to please Him, to not bring grief to Him or, or cause Him to be displeased or to bring a reproach to His name. That's why we preach so often times on living a life that is godly, living a life that has standards and above reproach, because there's a name that uh, we claim, and that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we live like the world, and we act like the world, and we begin to follow after the things of the world, we bring a reproach and we bring heartache to the cause of God, and, and to the point where, if we continue in it, He'll bring chastening to us. I'm thankful that I don't have to die for my sin and go to hell. But I do know that in this life, if I continue in that sin without conscience, God will continue to bring chastening to my life. And He'll do the same to you. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, He scourgeth and chasteneth every son. And the truth is, when we punish even our own children, we don't do it because we hate them or we dislike them. We do it because we love them very much. And we want them to turn out right. And uh, so it's very important that we understand uh, what it is that displeased God with Judah and to look into our own lives and our own hearts and say, Lord, uh, search my heart. I don't, want to, I don't want to be in this situation. So he, he deals with the judgment of the whole earth. He deals with the judgment of Judah. And uh, then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he extends grace to them. He says, look, if you'll repent. Let's look at it very quickly in verse number 3. He says, gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation, not desired, before the decree, before, uh, before the decree, bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be, uh, ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And so, even in the midst of His declaration of coming judgment, He still offers grace. No man can ever stand before God and say, God, you have been unjust to me to judge me. Every man has been given the opportunity. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 15, he pronounces judgment on the surrounding nations, primarily the nation of Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, and Assyria. These are some of the surrounding nations that God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. And he deals with that in chapter 2, verses 3 to 15. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, uh, he focuses then now on the city of Jerusalem itself. Uh, Jerusalem at this point, now again, understanding that this is going to be referred to in the end times as the holy city. This is going to be the city that uh, Christ sets up His throne in. This is the city of God, if you will. But at this time, uh, Jerusalem is characterized and marked by their immorality and their spiritual rebellion. They are very depraved at this point. Uh, there's a, there's a, a level of moral depravity. There's a level of spiritual rebellion in the city of Jerusalem itself. And so much so that God tells Judah as a whole, as a nation, hey, I'm going to judge you. But then he focuses in. He says, Jerusalem, specifically, I'm going to judge you. And he does so in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Then in chapter 3, verses 9 through the end of the book, is the time where God says, look, the judgment is coming, but... I am going to regather you to Myself, I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to restore you once again to be My people and for Me to be your God. 
And again, we just see the grace of God so many times throughout the Old Testament, do we not? Yes, there's judgment for sin. And we need to understand that. We need to preach that. In the day that we live, uh, everybody likes to preach about the love and the forgiveness of God, but we fail to preach on the fact that God is also a just God and that there are consequences for our actions. There are consequences for our sin. But in, in the case of understanding this, it does us good to know that He is still a God that loves. He is still a God that forgives. And what a wonderful thing it is to know those things. The author, of course, is himself, uh, Zephaniah. He, he refers to himself in chapter number 1, verse number 1. Traces his lineage uh, all the way back to Hezekiah and Josiah during the days of Josiah. Uh, but he uh, traces it all the way back to Hezekiah, um, uh, who was also uh, for, a, for a time a godly king and that he was from that royal line. Uh, he probably lived inside of uh, Jerusalem. We already mentioned that uh, because of his familiarity, uh, because of the fact he speaks of in chapter 1, and I think it's verse number 4, um, he says, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And so he references Jerusalem, and then he references it to this place as if he's in that location. And so, again, more than likely was living in Jerusalem at that time, or at least was a, a common uh, occurrence for him to be in that city. The time of Zephaniah was during the time of Josiah. It's very easy to pinpoint the time on this one because he tells us in verse number 1 that he's writing these things during the day of Josiah. Uh, he narrows it down a little bit more by speaking of the coming of the fall of Nineveh, which has not yet happened, uh, and uh, the fact that uh, there is a... Uh, uh, some of the sins that he refers to uh, were previous to the revival that took place in Judah. Uh, and so we understand that the time of revival took place between 625 or so B.C. and maybe 630, somewhere in that range. And so it kind of narrows it down to a fairly small number of years where the writing of this book took place. The Christ of Zephaniah, uh, how is Christ pictured here? We find two different locations where not directly but indirectly a reference is made to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look in chapter 1 and verse number 3. And God is speaking here. He says, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heavens and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the land, saith the Lord. And so even though it doesn't specifically mention the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand, and it's very, very clear, that he is referring to Christ being the one that's going to do this. Let's look in uh, Matthew chapter number 13. And uh, hold your place, and Zeph and I will be right back to it. But let's look in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 41. And uh, we'll see uh, again where it talks about this. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 41. The Bible says, the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man in this case? Capital S. The Lord Jesus Christ, all right? The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that is, that is doing these things uh, in the end times. He's bringing this judgment that was spoken of in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse number 3. So again, He's pictured here. And then also down in verse number 15 of chapter 1, we see once again, uh, chapter fifteen or chapter one, verse number fifteen, Zephaniah. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds 
and thick darkness. And again, uh, we find that this day of the Lord, uh, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. And we understand from our study of Revelation, from numerous references in the New Testament, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is performing these things in the day of the Lord during that time period. And so we see Christ is pictured, even though He's not specifically mentioned, the events that take place that He says, I'm going to do these things, we understand to be the Lord Jesus Christ Himself doing them. All right? Keys to Zephaniah, the theme of it would be the day of the Lord. Uh, Basically, the whole book is given to this. Uh, God is holy. Uh, and he has to vindicate his righteousness. That message is given throughout the book. Uh, the fact that he's going to call all nations into an account, and God is the only one that is just and able to do that. Uh, he will call every, all the nations into account. Uh, he also will give restoration to his people, that there will be a righteous remnant that will survive, and uh, that he will bless them in the end. God's desire is to spare people, but they ultimately reject Him. And so these are kind of the key themes and sub-themes throughout the book. The key verses are chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which we just read, and chapter 2, verse number 3, if you'll look there with me. Chapter 2, verse 3, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And so again... Uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 speaks of His judgment. Chapter 2 and verse number 3 speaks of His restoration. And we see both given in this particular book. The key chapter is chapter number 3, where we find the end of God's judgment, the beginning of His uh, restoring of Israel. And uh, a wonderful book uh, written to Judah. Uh, hundreds of years, and in some cases, because the day of the Lord has yet to happen, uh, thousands of years uh, before uh, the events that he tells are going to take place in some cases. And yet, rest assured, they are going to happen. And a lot of lessons that can be learned uh, as we study the book of Judah, uh, of Zephaniah regarding Judah. And uh, a lot of things that we can kind of put ourselves in Judah's place and understand that even though they, we look at them as, as the nation that has rejected God, uh, we find some of the same battles that they fought some of the same struggles that they were going through uh, are the same battles, the same struggles, the same temptations. I would say it this way, the same weaknesses that you and I find in our lives. And we can learn an awful lot. I'm so thankful that God gave us the Old Testament. A lot of people say, well, the Old Testament isn't relevant to today. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It teaches us so much. And the Bible tells us this. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It teaches us so many things about God's heart and God's mind, His righteousness, His holiness, the way He works. And what a wonderful study this morning. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for uh, the wonderful book that You've given to us. To be able to rest assured and understand and know that every word in it is true and pure. It is without error. And Lord, we rest in our teaching and our study of this, that all of it is truth. We don't have to wonder and doubt we don't have to try to, to weed out 